Hey, Dave here. Before launching into this episode, I have a couple things I want to go over. In the heyday of Performers.net, or PNET as it was known, Robert Nelson was a pretty active contributor, writing stories and providing commentary on the community and the craft. He always was a good storyteller, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place. The following segment comes from one of his written stories. I first met the checkerboard guy in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1988. He was driving a Mini Cooper that had a checkerboard paint job. Too cool, I thought, as I walked up and introduced myself to a very young but obviously together promo-wise performer. We had a common interest in British cars, so he showed me all the ins and outs of his Mini, and we immediately became friends. This passage speaks to the content of the episode that you're about to hear, and one of the last recordings I ever made with Robert. As I wind down my time with the stories from the Pitch Project, I wanted to revisit the voice of the guy who inspired me to start it in the first place. Seven years after his death, it was great listening to Robert's voice as I edited this episode. I hope you enjoy the story as much as I did. Alright, let's get to it. It's a good story, that truck, you know? And its license plate is Tonka, T-O-N-K-A-H. I tried to get it in uh, San Francisco, and I got T-O-N-K-A-O-O-O. Right. Uh, tonka Ooh. But when I came over here, nobody had Tonka Ah, because I thought Ah was cooler. Right. And it even looks Hawaiian, so... Uh, having a Hawaiian plate that says Tonka really makes it fit. And God bless Martin Ewan. You know, <laughs> you know really. It's like busking, you know. he He's an original. The truck's an original. It's stilts in the back of it. And, and it just fits. Everything works. And finally, it all came around to the right person. And... Uh, and you had to loan him a dollar so he could buy it. Yeah, he owes me that dollar. I want that dollar. Think you'll ever get it back? No. I'll never see that dollar again. The one pressing thing and the only thing that Robert was ethically or morally disturbed by was that he said, you realize that the floor of this vehicle is rotting out and I don't want to give it to you and have you just disappear onto the road but your side's pretty good just don't let fat passengers on <laughs> and I actually didn't you know I told some people that they just they were too heavy to get in the car I mean Robert told me he said that you know a couple of things came with this gift it was going to be an albatross. It was going to be a financial sinkhole. And I'm not someone who ever existed with the concept of disposable income. I mean, it was all disposable income. Right. So I'm not a money management sort of person. Right. I'm like a try not to spend money, spend money person. They're my two states. I'm binary, you know? You're on or you're off. Yeah. And... I eventually spent money and bought the 16 pieces that go from the sill on one side to the sill on the other for a new floor. Right. I bought all the original pieces and then I took the car apart, 
to put the floor in and there I stalled. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Story has been the focus of this podcast ever since it started. Longer episodes have told the story of a specific performer and their journey in the world of street theater. Shorter episodes have been anecdotes about events that happen to players within the world. These Stories from the Pitch have been the unifying theme that's held this project together. Now, the story that gets tackled in this episode is just a little bit different. Sure, Robert Nelson and Martin Ewan are legendary members of our community, but this episode is more about the history of a little red truck from England and the power it wielded over these two very different clowns. Robert's methodical persistence willed the thing back to life. Martin's pragmatic approach to treating the truck like a truck gave it a purpose and let its personality shine through even as its paint faded. During this episode, you'll hear the voices of both Robert Nelson and Martin Ewan as they describe their relationship with this Tonka truck and the mysterious hold it had on both of them. Two clowns, two completely different approaches, and a 1961 Morris Minor pickup truck that shared more than one journey to the pitch with each of them. Well, I tell you, first of all, I got to give you the reason why I own that truck. And the reason I own that truck is because when I got to San Francisco, the very first day I was there, I was walking down the cannery and a juggler, a friend of mine said, you have to stick around for a show tonight at seven o'clock, right at that stage over there, there's going to be a juggler. And so I did. I stuck around, but there was no juggler at 7 o'clock. There was a magician, and that magician's name was H.P. Lovecraft and the Magical Medicine Show. And I was just enamored with this guy. I'd never seen a street performer so well-dressed with a nice little case. Everything fit inside. He pulled it out. He had a little banner. And after the show, I went up to him, you know, and I said, I've done a couple of street shows in New Orleans, and uh, I'm kind of interested in street performing myself. Can I buy you a drink? And he said, sure. So we go in to where Cobb's Comedy Club uh, came up about five or six or seven years later. It was a little bar at the time, and I bought him, what was it? It was uh, Irish coffees. That's what he wanted. He had like three or four of them. Right. And then he says to me, uh, you sound like a pretty neat guy. Would you like to come back to my house and meet my wife and uh, I'll show you where I live? So I said, sure. You know, I had nothing better to do. So I get in this like, I think it was from 1938. It was a bread truck. Uh-huh. And it, this bread truck had it almost like what you were driving in the middle of it because the front part of it where all the bread deliveries would be was this huge long shelf. So you're like at least six or seven feet from your front windshield. Okay. He only had one seat. So I'm balanced holding on to the side of his seat sitting on the floor. But the thing that made it most dramatic was not the inside of the truck, was the outside of the truck, which had this beautiful mural of a magician with doves and these 
ornate, scripted H.P. Lovecraft, the magical medicine show. Right. And it had all these really neat things on it. So, like, I'm, like, blown away by this bread truck and this guy with his fancy magician's outfit. Then we walk into his home and I meet his wife, who's a tap dancing nun. (laughs) And... I know, I know. And like there's walls and walls and walls of pictures of performers. Ray Jason with black hair. Oh, God, really? Yes, I know. Everybody had a black and white photo. And one of, anyway, as it turns out, Harry said, you know, if you want to stay in my garage for a while, you know, it's a heated garage. Thanks a lot. And uh, (laughs) if you want to try out street performing, you know, just let me know. And I, right. of course, I took him up on the offer. And that juggler turned out to be A. Whitney Brown, who didn't show up and gave his set to Harry. And A. Whitney Brown lived upstairs from Harry. There was two rooms in this uh, sunset house that Harry was renting. Right. And Whitney and this girl lived upstairs and Whitney had somehow gotten this girl pregnant and they decided to get, (laughs) I know, I know, and they had decided to move out together and uh, get married, which they eventually did. Hmm. And those two rooms became available and uh, myself and Michael Marlin, who put up all the money for both rooms because I didn't have any, and I ran into the very next day. Uh, you know, I had known him. He was kind of a star in the international juggling community and a professional juggler already. Right. Uh, and I had seen him dying in a street show on Market Street outside of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. Uh, which made me realize that you never try to do a street show in front of everybody who's all dressed up in costumes that are more elaborate than yours. Is. Yeah, you look like the least interesting person at that point. There was no question about that. Anyway, I had told Michael about this guy I had met. Let's go visit him. He came along, and Michael at the time was very, very successful. So uh, he ended up uh, renting both of those rooms and giving me one of them until I could make uh, enough money on the street to pay him back, which I eventually did, but it took me several months. So where does he go back to the truck, though? I mean, you first saw the... Well, okay, okay, okay. So I'm looking at Harry and all of these photographs of all these eccentric performers. And there was one named John Timothy and Ray Jason and Hokum W. Jeebs and like all these local people. Right. And during the course of my tenure there, my first couple of weeks... I actually got to meet all those people. And I meet uh, John Timothy. He's got this piano in the back of his truck. I meet Ray Jason. He's got this really cool, old, refurbished flatbed truck. It was a stage on the back of it. A really old truck, but really well done. And then I meet Oakham W. Jeeves, who was living in a glass house at the time. Literally a glass house. It was... uh, some sort of uh, place on the side of someone's house that they used to grow plants in. And he had converted to his own apartment. And his van was Hokum W. Jeeves, eccentric music review, beautiful lettering. (laughs) And so I'm thinking, I need a truck. (laughs) Yeah, 
I guess what it was, uh, David, more than anything else, is that I walked into this old school world of originality and every busker not only had an original act and original costuming, they had an original vehicle that kind of represented who they were. Sort of persona that was like part of their identity. Exactly. And so when I did essentially an A. Whitney Brown and got this girl pregnant, <laughs> she said, I'm going to need some sort of vehicle to take him to the hospital with. And I said, okay, well, uh, don't you think you ought to have the baby first? And she's very pregnant and we're walking down the streets in Santa Cruz by the way, she was the girl at the comic book store, the really hot girl on ro- that used to roll around on roller skates. Her name was Christine, and boy, she was really hot and very, very funny, and uh, she just went after me. She just said, that's what I want. Look at the kind of money that guy makes in his hat, you know? And <laughs> Little did she realize. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, we, you know, we had a wonderful son, Coleman, together, and he's still one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me in my life. Right. And he was now 30 years old. So this was 30 years ago. It's a good timing on this. So we see this beat-up truck. And it was just lying in the weeds with uh, just a big uh, crunch back end uh, that somebody had run into it. And it was all rusty and green and uh, really ugly. So uh, so you went, yeah, that's the car for me. No, no, no. no, actually, she said, that's the car for me. Look at that thing. It's so cute. I'm Morris Minor. I didn't even know what a Morris Minor was back then. And yes, I should have just walked away. But uh, my sister happened to be visiting me and was walking with us. And this was uh, 1981. Okay. And Kathy and I and a very pregnant Christine see this truck. And Christine goes, oh, I want it, I want it, I want it. And then I go, well, I don't know. You know, I don't want to buy a... It's it's like it's 50 bucks. You know, that's a lot of money. You know, that's like a, 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 a third of a hat, you know. No, actually, it wasn't the the money. It was the fact that it was such a hunk of junk, and I didn't know anything about fixing up anything. And I still don't, even though I ended up did refurbish that truck over the years. Uh, but anyway, uh, but my sister, and this is kind of a sad note, uh, she says to me after Christine, I, I already decided, no, I'm not going to get it. She goes, oh, I'll buy it. It's such a cute truck. And then the next thing I find out, she gets hit by a car and that ends her life. So here's my son being born, losing my sister. And the last thing she says to me, is, oh, Bobby, buy that truck. It's so cute. So I went, uh, that's it. I'm buying it. Right. So I uh, actually the, the seal of the deal was Christine herself called me and said, "No, nah, don't buy it." I had somebody check it out, and they said it's not worth fifty dollars. So that for sure sealed the deal. So I said, "Okay," and I bought it. So wait a minute, she told you not to buy it. Yes, <laughs> and that was did. the tipping point for you to actually make the purchase. Absolutely, because by this time I knew what this girl was all about. She was a a drug dealer, and that's why I, you know, knew her. Uh, she did that part time, and then that became her full time job. 
And then for a while, when we were boyfriend and girlfriend, she would count my hat money for me. And I couldn't imagine why during that time I made so little. uh, (laughs) So I used to go down and visit my son, uh, Oh, just about every weekend or uh, as much as I could in Santa Cruz. And I'd be with this lovely little boy who just loved me. And uh, he would go to sleep for long periods of time. And his mom, of course, uh, would replenish my drug supply. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day I was looking at the little green truck, which had already stopped working. She got it towed to her house. And then one of her friends got it running and it ran for about, I don't know, 20 minutes and then died. Got it. So anyway, it's sitting there growing more weeds in her front yard. And so I said, I saw a little bit of rust on the back end of it, right around the back fender. And I I said, well, I wonder if I just got this off of here and then I did that, you know, somebody showed me what Bondo was, and I sanded it, and then I rebondoed it, and then then I said, well, if I took this nut off of here, and then that nut off of there, I could take that off, and then I could sand this area, and I could do the same thing, and oh, that would, that, that, okay, and then... The next thing I know, I'm through like uh, three or four eight balls, and that truck is completely <laughs> taken apart, piece by piece. And uh, there was not a nut that was not undone. There was not a instrument. Everything was all in pieces, and I didn't label anything. I just stuck them all in different boxes. Oh. And I, yeah, no, the engine was the biggest piece. Uh, (laughs) I didn't take that apart, but it was out. Everything was apart, David. All the panels, everything. Okay, no, no, before we go much further, um, for anyone who doesn't know, you should tell us what kind of vehicle this is, a little bit of its history, anything else like that you can give us. I didn't know anything about it at the time. Remember, it's 1981. There's pre-internet. I didn't, it didn't say Morris Minor on it anywhere. Uh, It was just a truck, a cute little teeny truck. And so me not knowing anything about it, I just, you know, of course, took it completely apart, put it in the boxes. And then one day I saw another one on the streets of San Francisco and I stopped the guy and his name was Rick Frybush. uh, I'll never forget his name. And he goes, uh, I said... I took a car apart, and it looks very much like uh, yours, a little bit different. Yours is like a Woody, uh, but uh, I'm sure it's the same kind. He goes, oh, you mean it's a Morris Minor? And I said, I think it is. Anyway, uh, he came over to my house, and he said, man, you got a pickup truck. Those are very rare, a Morris Minor pickup truck. He goes, what year is this? And I said, well, geez, I don't know what year it is. And he looks and he looks and he finally finds a panel and he goes, I think it's a 1961 or 60 or 59. I can't tell because obviously there was a fire in here and and something burned off all these things. But I think this says 60, 
or, or 59. So for a couple of years, I was saying it was a 59 or a 60. Right. And then we did find a number that was burnt up pretty bad. And we, we sent it in and found out it was a 1961. Wow. Anyway, that being said, it's still all in pieces. In boxes in San Francisco because you'd taken it apart. Christine had driven it till it stopped. And now it's sitting there waiting for you to deal with it. Got it. Wrong. Wrong. I'm about to embark on my NACA career, National Association of Campus Activities, with all of this in boxes in Santa Cruz, California. Got it. Fully an hour and a half south. Well, I become relatively successful touring, and from 1981 till 1984... It remains in boxes in her garage. How long uh, did it actually run after you bought it originally? Uh, you bought it in 81. I'd say pff, I'm thinking maybe uh, for 20 minutes at a time. That's uh, uh, <laughs> in a year, maybe a year and a half. But it, during that time, I had put untold God amount of money in fixing this and fixing that with British car people. Maybe uh, up to that time, I had spent 2000 maybe $3,000 on it already. And then once it was apart, uh, of course, it just stayed apart. And I never got back to it because I was just too busy performing all the time. Right. And so finally, Christine uh, and Coleman, they move out of that house while I was on tour for four months. And the people who moved in, they wanted that garage space to themselves. So they took all of those pieces and the boxes and threw them into the vacant lot behind her house where there was nothing but weeds. Yes, so now it's being rained on and all the pieces are scattered amongst the weeds. (laughs) And, you know, the cardboard, of course, just melted in the rain. Right. So I come back from my uh, four months on the road and I have this big black friend named Patrick who was this bouncer at a comedy club I worked with. And they called him the doctor because he basically could cure any situation because he was just mean and tough and uh, just a sweetheart of a guy. But he looks bad. He looks, you know, he drives a Harley. He's like 6'4", 6'5", and just ugly. He's just an ugly. In fact, that's what I call him. Hey, ugly. And he he calls me ugly. (laughs) And you're both right. (laughs) Right. So uh, here we go. I go, Patrick, I'm going to rent a truck. You're coming with me if these people give us any problems. And again, we come down and rummage through these uh, <coughs> backyard of all these people and pull all this shit out of the weeds and throw it into the back of this truck. And I take it up to San Francisco. And during the course of the next uh, nine years, I moved to like five or six different places. I would always have to rent two rooms wherever I was. Like I remember when I was with Wheeler, uh, I stayed at his place for a while. I rented a whole room just for the boxes of the stuff for the truck, the trucks and pieces. So I'm moving and and believe me, when you get friends to help you move your shit, it's one thing. But when they see that they have to move boxes and boxes of beat up old 
piece of shit, rusty-ass car parts as well, they are never happy. So I would lose friends every time I moved. <laughs> Why did you keep it? I don't know. I'm tenacious that way. I said, well, someday I'm going to put this thing back together again. Anyway, so after many, many years in San Francisco, I finally rent a place in Bernal Heights that has a garage. And I said, wow, this is so cool. I can now put this truck together again in my spare time. Well, I didn't know how to put it back together, but I did know how to use a grinder. Or actually, I didn't know how to use a grinder. I found out from somebody, that's what you buy to get rust off of metal. And so I buy a little wheel grinder, and I tenaciously took every part of that truck, the cab, the hood, the fenders, which were all in pieces, mind you. And I just sanded them all down to bare metal. And the places where the rust had completely gone through, like the floorboard of the cab, I learned how to use Bondo. I mean, I'm not saying I did a good job or anything like that, but I Bondoed it and fiberglassed it, and I put the resin in here, and I patched this and that, and then smoothed everything out. Mm. So at a certain point, it was all sprayed with this kind of reddish primer right and it didn't look too bad it really didn't look too bad you know and i by this time i had gone through geez about a couple of different vans had you know conked out on me on touring uh and i had ordered a gosh what was the name of that some sort of minivan i had ordered and it, it didn't have a proper bed in it and i wouldn't accept it until they put the bed in it And anyway, that being said, I was driving this beater, what was it, a Colt E, a Dodge Colt E, which made so much noise, didn't have a muffler. I think I got it for like, I don't know, 50, 100 bucks, 150 bucks. And I was driving that around and smash, I got hit on the side of it. No damage to me, but it smashed up the car on one side. You know, I did have insurance, and the insurance said, yeah, we'll pay for it and have it painted. And so I had this truck in my garage all in pieces but ready to be painted Mm -hmm. because I wanted it painted before I tried to put it back together, right? Right. So it would get all around the edges and stuff. I went to the guy, and I said, instead of painting this piece of crap that I got, how about painting this uh, Morris Minor truck that's in pieces for me? And he goes, well, you know, it's not really ethical, but yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I still didn't know much about Morris Miners at the time, although I did know to call it a Morris Minor. Right. So I take it down and get all the pieces spray painted and he did a fairly good job. He didn't do a great job or anything, but now it's all red. Which, if I had realized what a Morris Minor was all about, I never would have made it red. But I'm thinking little red trucks. How cool is that? Right. And I just wanted to get it back together again. Anyway, I don't know the first thing about how to put a car back together again. But I've got it all painted. And, of course, I didn't do anything about the screws or the nuts or the... The little teeny pieces, they were all still in buckets and jars uh, lying around. And I figured, you know, well, I'll just replace them as needed, but I'll keep them the original. So 
you know, where do you start? Yeah. I put the frame down because I knew the frame is there. I had that dipped and I spray painted it black and it's all there. And okay, what's next? And then I look over and I see these kind of beat up tires and I go, well, how does it go on that? You know, or, uh, and then I quit. (laughs) I, I just had no idea what to do. So I remember at a street performer meeting trying to, I know, David, this is terrible. You're laughing at my incompetence. No, it's good. I looked and I quit. Oh, well, it wasn't it. How do you attach a wheel to a frame? I don't know. Were there no axles? There were no axles on the frame. There's nothing. It's a frame. It's just a frame. And the axles were there somewhere, but I didn't know how they attached or what or, you know, or what sits on top of what. And it's just all too much for me. So I try to sell all these pieces to Wheeler. I said, okay, Wheeler, uh, he says, I I said $150, but I remember saying $50, which is what (laughs) I paid for it. So, So I say 50 bucks. And he goes, hmm, you know, because he was pretty good with tools, and I saw him taking care of his truck all the time and his van. So I figured he was a good guy to offer it to. And he says, well, let me think about it. And he thought about it, and he said no. So now I'm stuck in a garage full of all these parts with these little freshly painted pieces of truck. And one day Dana Smith calls me. And Dana says, hey, Robert, I think uh, I got somebody to help you. He's very mechanically oriented. He can pretty much put anything together. I'm going to bring him over. And this guy walks into my garage. I open up the garage door. I didn't say one word to him uh, about what I had in there. And he looks in and he goes, oh, it's a Morris Minor. It's a pickup truck. (laughs) These are very rare, you know. (laughs) And immediately went, wow, did Dana picked the right guy. Yeah. And he goes, uh, well, it looks to me like you got all the pieces here. He says, but what's this over here? And he's talking about a big, long metal tube uh, that revolves around itself on both ends. And and I still don't even know what they call those things. The drive shaft? Yeah, drive shaft. The, the thing, the real long, thick one, yeah. right? It's, yeah. Yeah. And it goes down the full length of the car. He goes, well, what's this? And I said, well, I guess that's part of the car. He says, no, this is to a tractor. So for nine <laughs> years, I had not only carried around pieces of the truck, but whatever else was lying around in that yard from a dismantled tractor. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so anyway, we tossed that out. And... uh we start at 10 o'clock in the morning. We work until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, he would piece by piece put everything together. Now, this kid, when he was growing up, uh, his parents wouldn't allow him out of the house. They would lock him inside the garage for hours right. in England. And he would take everything apart and put everything back together. And in it was refrigerators, stoves, and their Morris Minor. So he was the perfect person. This was what he did. He took things apart and he put them back together before his parents found out about it. He had electrical abilities. He had mechanical abilities. 
he knew exactly what to do. So he says, well, you know, do you have uh, tools? And I said, well, no, but I'll, I'll be willing to go out and buy a tool set. Right. And so I went out and I bought this real fancy American uh, tool set and a metric tool set, uh, just because I didn't know the difference, really. Sure. Uh, so I bought everything. And one of these, uh, it was like a Sears, get every tool you'll ever need, you know, in this big, huge case. Right. And I bring it back and I show it to him. And it cost hundreds of dollars. Right. And he, he goes, well, you you know this is a Wentworth system. And I go, what the fuck is a Wentworth? <laughs> he says, none of these uh, wrenches are going to be any good to you because uh, Morris Miners were built in England and they had a completely different side screw. Wow. And I went, oh, Jesus. So none of the stuff that I had worked. But as it was, we tried to re-put the thing together using stainless steel bolts if they fit since everything was apart the only the things that absolutely were essential Wentworth ones stayed that system right? yeah and we struggled with that believe me a lot new wiring system uh I had every piece chromed that I could including the grill which is never chromed and uh, like I said, this guy knew what he was doing. Eventually, we get everything put together except no muffler on it. But it's ready to have a key put in it and start it. How long did it take from when he came over that morning to when it was actually back together? I think it only took about seven or eight months. But pretty much almost every day, at least five days a week. And what I would do is like from two o'clock, uh, you know, we worked from 10 to two right. and he'd tell me exactly what he wanted me to do. He'd show me what to do and then set me to work. And then he would go and do something like he would do one bolt and I would do the other eight. Right. So you got to learn everything about the car while you were putting it back together as well. I learned a lot about that car. I did learn an awful lot, but not enough to really make a difference in the long run because, uh, you know, cars are cars. And uh, I basically had a person telling me what to do and telling me what a thing was and what it did. But once you do it, you know, you forget pretty quickly. Right. You know, what does a carburetor do? Uh, oh, yeah, that's what, it, oh, I can recognize a carburetor now. Or uh, I know what a solenoid is, but I don't really know what it does. I wouldn't know how to fix it if it, something went bad. So essentially, I learned Jack about the car even completely taking it apart and completely putting it back together again. So what you're saying is you're not a mechanic. You were a laborer on this particular project. I was totally a laborer. And at 2 o'clock, when he left, I would clean up. And right. I'd make the garage sparkle again and put all the tools back into the same place. And then I would go shopping and find all the things that he required of me. Now, mind you, pre-internet, uh, you know, certain screws are, are things you can get from hardware stores. But sometimes he would ask, he'd go, well, you know, you need a, a this particular kind of fan belt or this or that and the other. Hmm. And these things were not easy to find. 
I would have to go to junkyards, which I became very familiar with, and I would go down and I would try to compare the old piece to the new piece. And sometimes I, I did pretty good, mm. uh, remarkably, except with a fan where I felt it fit on pretty good. Uh, but it ended up, instead of blowing air and cooling the engine, it blew air the other way, which made the engine heat up even more, and I didn't even know that for the longest time. But once this thing started, which it did on that particular day, Ray Jason, Dana, Wheeler, all the street performers came over to my house, and we started up this cute little red truck and drove it out of my garage. And... uh because this guy was a really good mechanic, he could do that. But to really fine tune the SU carburetors, yeah, it was going to require a specialist with the proper tools. And so I had to take it down with no muffler yeah. to uh, Market Street, right through the Mission District in San Francisco, which was predominantly Mexican at that time. So this cute little bright shiny chromy loud little truck is going through the mission district i don't know how i did it but it was like 20 minutes away from bernal heights and it died as soon as i got it to the <laughs> and we bring it in there and he tunes it up and gets it all working right yeah and uh, when I came back to pick it up, uh, he says, it's all ready to go. Uh, here's another big bill that you need to pay. And, of course, I pay right away. And I get in the truck, and it starts right up. And I was, oh, he did a really good job. And I look at the gas tank, uh, and it's almost full. And I said, well, wasn't that nice of him to put gas in it, you know? So I drive out and I make it maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes into the 20 minute ride, 10 minutes away. I'm center of mission district, Mexican staring at me left and right as I'm going down the street and it dies Uh, again. And there I am. Well, it, and and it like click, 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 but it's full. You know, the gas gauge says it's full. Yeah, that's right. Well, we had hooked it up backwards and to this day, it's still, when it reaches full, it is actually means empty. We never switched it back. Uh, so <laughs> you get used to it after a while, believe me. You know, it's almost empty. Ah, I've got plenty of gas. Right. <laughs> that was just one of the quirks that went along with it. And I think it's a Midas, and everybody who's worked on it has always commented what a cool little truck it is. And they... They give you a little extra, like they chrome a little extra piece for you or they added a little bit of this or that. So it was uh, really pristine. But by this time, I'm already married. Uh, uh, What's this, like early 90s at this point? Yeah. uh, Like I said, I was planning on picking up this Japanese girl that I had met at the airport in this really reconstructed truck and no it didn't happen and what did happen is that she ended up with me and uh, this guy getting into the places where only a really teeny person could fit to get this bolt uh, and the other and she just she hated it she, she from the moment we were first together 
you know, I'd scream, you know, Kumi, come down, help, help. I'm under here. I can't get out. You know, you need to get into this spot. And she'd, you know, scrape a knuckle. So she put a lot of time and effort in on uh, screwing pieces of that truck together like I did. So, you know, now my son is nine years old and it's finally back together. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to give it to him when he turns 16, you know. Right. And that was the whole deal. And as it turns out, he sprouts up to six foot two and he couldn't even fit in the thing. You know, he was so tall that he would lean over and the only thing he could look at is the steering wheel facing down. (laughs) So it was uh, essentially worthless to give it to him. So I kept it. Uh, We moved to L.A. and... I tried to drive it uh, 20 minutes at a time wherever I went. I mean, I literally drove it from San Francisco to L.A. 20 minutes at a time. It would die. I would wait 20 minutes for the engine to cool off. I'd start it up again, go for another 20 minutes. And this is on the 101 with cars and just... Was it because of the fan being the wrong way? No, no. We had fixed the fan by this time. We had gone through everything else. I thought by this time, but still in LA, I did get it there. It took me like 18 hours to, to get it cow. to tennis. Uh, finally pull in at 11 o'clock at night. There's uh, Kumi at the door in our brand new uh, apartment they were in by Venice Beach. And uh, it had a garage. And I pulled the thing in. And again, uh, 20 minutes at a time. I joined a little gym because that's what you do in L.A., you know, to stay in shape. I'm already 40 years old, and I said, well, I'm going to join a gym. I'm going to give up pot, which I did, I and miserable time in L.A. doing auditions. But uh, this truck stayed with me, and I kept it. And so all those years, 13 years, in San Francisco, 13 years in L.A. So now I have the thing for 26 years. And we decided to move to Hawaii, but I've never driven it for over 20 minutes at a time. Right. Uh, bring it over to Hawaii, blah, blah, blah. In 20 minutes at a time. Uh, there's nothing, you know, it's 22 minutes to Hilo, so I don't take it to Hilo. It's... <laughs> It's 21 minutes to visit Graham at Belly Acres, so I don't take it to Belly Acres. But I drive it to Pahoa every once in a while. And every time a local person over here would see me, they, they'd start screaming at me in pidgin. And then they'd realize I was a howley. I don't know how to speak pidgin. And I just got this same blank look on my face. You know, they go, hey, brah, you're not and I'd like uh, it's a, it's a Morris Minor uh, pickup truck. Uh, it's British. And then they go, uh, you know, they, they, then they look away and they never look at me again. Right. But apparently, the locals love that truck. They love old things over here, mm-hmm. especially the unrusted old things. Well, it was pretty pristine when we got it here, and then slowly the rain, even if it's in a carport. In fact, when we got here, we called up a guy who owns a Morris Minor over in Oahu, 
because you know now they have uh, internet and we could find out who was a member of the Morris Minor Club of this that and the other. Right, you can find each other then. Yeah, and mind you, all those years in L.A., I ran into. In fact, a guy pulled me over on the side of the road, just like uh, I found some guy up in San Francisco, Rick Frybush, who knew everything about Morris Miners. Uh, I found a guy in L.A. who was less than 20 minutes away from me, right, in Marina Del Rey, who would help me with everything of the car. Uh, but he could never find anything wrong with it either. You know, he said, no, everything looks good, you know, but I don't know why it dies on you all the time. But, you know, after a while, you know, David, you get into a car and you realize that you're not going to go more than 20 minutes in it. You don't go more. <laughs> you, you just never get in it unless where you have to go is less than 20 minutes away. Right. And that's exactly what I did. Now, it happened that the street pitch that I worked on Venice Beach for a while was just 10 minutes away. So it was no problem. So I would use the truck for that or the gym, which was like 15 minutes away. It would be no problem. After that, uh, some of the stores, a grocery store was five, ten minutes away. That would be okay, too, as long as you could wait 20 minutes. You know, if you had less shopping to do, like it was just a pop in and pop out, you better have less than 10 minutes on the clock before you get there and don't turn the engine off or it'll just won't start again. So. So after all this time, you, you brought it over to Hawaii. You were running it 20 minutes. We're running it for 20 minutes at a time. Yeah. Then the doctors say, oh, by the way, uh, we see a tumor in your uh, neck muscle. I think you're going to be dead soon. This is about a year and a half later. And my whole community over here has what's known as uh, they take a pig and they bury it in the ground and they cook it. Overnight. Like a luau. Yeah, it's it's very similar to like a, what a luau is, but no hula dancers. Oh. Anyway, so I go over to this big thing at Belly Acres, which is this community of jugglers and all my friends, and they have a big, big, big party for me, right? Mm-hmm. So at the party is a guy named Lauren Douglas, who knows all about British cars, made his money in like the stock market years ago, and now makes chopsticks. And I don't know. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now you're getting an idea what, this is more about who lives over on this desolate place than anything else. Anyway, Lauren says, you know, my wish for you, Robert, is to see you driving that little red truck of yours up and down the red road, which is the road that goes on the ocean. Right. And I said, well, you know, Lauren, lots of people have looked at this truck over the years. It's never run more than 20 minutes. Uh, I appreciate it. He says, well, let me take a look at it. And I said, well, you know, yeah, okay, sure. This is like 29 years. I've had this thing for almost 30 years. And it's never run right. So who is he to think he's going to get it going right? Yeah. So he starts like everybody else. They think it's the carburetor. Mm. Uh, then they think, well, maybe the that's some sort of vapor lock. And then they go through this uh, 
uh, we got to change the position of your uh, fuel pump and maybe it should be heat in the back instead of in the front and oh uh, all maybe- diagnostics you've already done I've done this whole thing so many times. By this point, I have a electronic ignition that somebody had put in. Mm. I have a, a super coil. I have. Uh, I didn't change the the carburetors, but they're so finely tuned. It's just that's definitely not the problem. Right. So uh, he he goes. He takes uh, it all apart. And he says, "You know, I see a little bit of rust coming now." He, in Hawaii, you have to keep your gas tank full. Uh, otherwise, the vapor, the air is so salty and that it will rust the inside of your tank out. Mm. And that's the first I had heard about this because we had bought a new car when we came over here. And I said, oh, okay. So I take the tank out, or he hands me the tank, and I buy this expensive flushing stuff and recoating the inside of it stuff. And with a hair dryer, you're drying it and dipping it and doing this, that, and the other. It takes me a couple of days to do it. Right. But I'm pretty much good at that sort of thing. I clean it all up. I bring it back to him. And he goes, wow, it looks like you did a really good job with this, uh, Robert. And, of course, he's looking at my clothes and my shoes that are now covered with this clear urethane crap that I got all over everything, including myself. Right. As he's looking inside the tank, you know, because it's a sealed tank, right? Right. And it's small. You can hold it in your hand. It doesn't weigh more. It's only a five-gallon tank, right? Right. And uh, the sun hits something and glimmers just for a second he goes what's that in there i said well i don't know lauren it's just you know everything in there is clean i'll tell you that right and he holds it and then he takes a light and he's looking at it different he says you know you there's something leading from the bottom of this tank to the outtake valve and he says you know what it is it's a fuel filter that they made for the inside of the Morris Minor vehicle up until uh, the 60s, they put a metal fuel filter inside the tank. Inside the tank. You're kidding. So, so it was uh, just not, you were just not getting fuel. That's why it was stopping every 20 minutes. Exactly. So he takes a long one of his chopsticks and he punches out the four sides to that because it was all corroded. Yeah. And now it's all covered with that plastic stuff, right? Right. So we punch the holes through that, puts it back together again, runs like a fucking top. (laughs) Runs beautifully. We take it up and down the red road. Right at the 20-minute mark, I start to shake, you know, uncontrollably. (laughs) We're just going to die, and it doesn't die. And I freak, and I'm ecstatic about it. He's ecstatic about it. And we pull into my carport with it, and he goes, there you go, Robert, and he takes off. And there sits the truck. Now, mind you, if you have a truck that you've had together for 20 years but owned for 30, and during that time never driven for over 20 minutes, you will never get in that car to drive for a 21-minute drive again without Panicking. shaking. Yeah. yeah. And I noticed that every time I did it, 
I just started shaking right. and saying, I'm not going to do it. I can't do this. It drives me crazy because psychologically I'm conditioned for that. Well, come Martin Ewan, who moves over here after visiting me for a while, he goes, what a cool place you live in. This is just like New Zealand, but better. Right. I'm going to move here. And he moves over to the Kona side. And he's eventually carless, moneyless, wifeless, and uh, <coughs> decides, well, and I'm looking at this truck that's finally working. Yeah. For the first time, and I say, "Hey, Martin, you know, I'll sell it to you for a dollar." He goes, "Well, I don't have a dollar. Can I borrow a dollar, Robert?" So he borrows a dollar from me. I sell it to him for a dollar, and uh, I calculated how much money I put into it. And I, over the years, it was twenty-seven thousand dollars I had put into this truck, and now I can't drive it without panicking. Yeah, without panicking, and. He gets it for $1 and it runs like a top. The only way that it will pay for itself and pay for the money that's been invested in it over the years is if you spend fifteen to 25000 and make it electric. Right. Because it's getting to the point that it started in Madrid, it'll go through every other major city in the next however long. They don't allow combustion engines in the inner city anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. I see that being a trend. And I see things like a 1961... Well, firstly, it's made for electric because it's a truck. And underneath the floor at the back, there's nothing but a fuel tank, which, with its electric, is not used. Mm -hmm. You can have whole row of batteries there. So right. that's the load that it's built for. It's a truck, but it's very small. But you could have an easy 200-mile range range on it, which is the problem with New Zealand. Everything's 200. more than 100 miles apart. Right. It's just not quite made for it. But it's in America at the moment, so it doesn't matter. But I see something like a more than 55-year-old vehicle that runs on electric being a status symbol. Right, to, you know. Well, in the statement like for twenty-first century, it's just like the longer it lives now, the more valuable it is. Right. So that's my plan, but I have a lot of fucking plans. But you know, that's the other thing with electric. You don't have carburetors, and you don't have. It's not a big oily, messy, fifty-year-old piece of engineering anymore. It's just one or two motors. If you get two motors, then you've got to start strengthening it for the torque. Because with two motors, that's scary fast behavior for something as small as that is which I I think overpowering small things is a good idea <laughs> <laughs> that seems smart yeah 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 did you enjoy driving around in the truck oh yeah I, yeah I did I kind of took it for granted as well though I mean I enjoyed it but being special was just part of the it was weird you know it was bizarre because I went from being homeless, having my mind kind of snapped, and I was living on the street without busking, and then I went into rehab, then I got the car. So for a while I was driving around, it was just like two worlds, you know? And I got the vehicle well before Robert died, so 
<clears throat> there was a visiting Robert with it as well. Do you think it made I him sorry? Yeah. But do you think it made him happy to see you driving in that truck? Oh yeah, I think so. Definitely. Definitely. And he's been over to visit me uh, at least nineteen times. How long's the drive from the Kona side over to you? Minimum an hour and a half. Never an issue. Never an issue. Has run like a top ever since. But here's the thing. I, like yourself and anybody else who owns a old vehicle, we don't slam doors shut. We don't slam hoods shut. We open everything slowly and methodically and easily yeah. and gently close things and push them, but not Martin. Martin is now learning the number one rule of owning an old vehicle, which is treat it with respect and kindness. And uh, he is, you know, the clutch has gone out on him a couple of times because he just rides the clutch. And uh, if the door doesn't close just right, he slams it. So he's, he's had replace this, that, and the other. And now he has a surfboard rack on it. He has a sound system in it. He's doing all of the things that I would have loved to do, but I'm so much more pragmatic and practical. I definitely make sure it's all working properly rather than uh, looking cool. And Martin's definitely into the looking cool phenomena. And, you know, Martin being Martin... Uh, is used to having people staring at him. Right. And if they don't stare at him, he wonders what the fuck is wrong with them. Right. So he wears his leg-stemmed sunglasses, and he's got his surfboard rack and his cool sound system, and he's tooling around the island having the coolest, little red truck on uh, the big island of Hawaii. There's no question about that. It is cool, and it looks really cool. Because it was a gift from Robert, did it have a greater meaning to you? Oh, yeah. It was like a curse. (laughs) It was like, I think I described it like he couldn't afford a fucking death ray on a satellite, so he gave me his fucking car, because it was just easier. So, you know, it got me a lot of uh, good attention for a, a period of time. I'd noticed that people's faces would light up on, with oncoming traffic. Like, in a place like uh, the Big Island in Hawaii, it stood out, you know. It just, it's a very unusual vehicle for America and for the Big Island. It's the only one that's there. So I get one, two, three four passers-by all erupt into a smile. I'm just looking at it from my peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. I wasn't being too needy. Right. However, like the fifth person, would, their mind would be somewhere else, and they wouldn't react. And I thought it was amusing because I was so sensitive that that fifth person, I would go, what's their fucking problem? <laughs> and then... I realized how attuned I was to the attention this vehicle was giving me, that I could notice the smallest piece of indifference and and just go, what's wrong with you? You should be looking at me and smiling. There was that aspect to it, 
Did that play into your performer sensibilities as well? Well, it might have on some level, but I was kind of sort of constant low-grade depression I was in, so it didn't really... I can still work off the, the things. I recognise the things. You know, I can still work and, and stuff like that, but I'm not in the soup. I'm observing the soup, uh. sort of t- in terms of how I'm emoting. Well, here's a question then. Does, did the truck... It took center stage, not you. Well, we worked together a lot too because I would turn up and then sit on the back and put my stilts on. Ah, right, right. So it was like it was a clown car in that way, and I really liked that about it, that I could turn up with that, sit on it, put my shit on, and go to work. And I just got to say, after all is said and done, David, I think that car never liked me. It... (laughs) Just, it didn't care how much attention I gave it. It didn't like the fact that I was an American. And it only ran well for somebody because he has a New Zealand accent. <laughs> it had a personal vendetta against you. It never liked me, David. And it likes me now because he drives it over. And he just throws trash in the bottom of it. You know, it never had any dirt in it for the 30 years I had it. It was always pristine. The carpeting, the upholstery, it was always waxed. It was always buffered. It never ran, but it always was clean and perfect. And now it's just trashed. There's coffee cups, he spills this in it, he spills that in it. It's rusting, the grill is rusting, the bumpers are rusting, it's, the paint is fading because he leaves it in the sun. But he uses it, and it runs like a top. So, you know, what are you going to do? At a certain point, you go, the truck's not the problem, you're the problem. I'm <laughs> It loves being dirty. It loves having its uh, glove box slammed shut and being stuffed with old Starbucks coffees and gum wrappers on the floor. And Oh, God, it's just disgusting. It took me nine hours to clean a two-seater cab. It was here nine hours. I had to get underneath those seats, and you and I pulled out over fourteen pens from underneath there, all working. Fourteen pens that he had stolen from some hotel. Uh, they were all the same type of pen. He'll get rid of the fire ash on the outside, yeah. and just he doesn't litter, so he throws it on the floor of the truck. Right. So I pull out. Uh, cigarette butts and and just all this disgusting stuff that martin urine is just a filthy human being uh <laughs> he is and he doesn't you know it's just but he he reads a lot of books so and any and he and he'll read it and he'll just throw it on the ground but but robert do you think the truck knows like you said the truck has its personality the truck didn't like you the truck hey, wanted to be treated like a truck, and it, that's the way Martin treats it. So do you think yes, the truck I respects do. him? Uh, the truck loves Martin. It loves its life over there on the 
on the dry side of the island. It didn't like it over here. It didn't like L.A. It didn't like San Francisco and the hills, and it didn't like me. Do you uh, prescribe to Robert's notion that the truck didn't like him? It was very strange that it had never driven 20 miles without breaking down all the time he owned it, and then I just drove it across the big island as soon as I got it and had no real faults with it. I had a really good run with it. What, over five years? I drove it and put money into it by replacing objects made of metal inside it. <laughs> and then the quote I got to put the floor in was twice as much as my budget. And I had sanded it down to the bare metal in prescribed patches going throughout the car because I was living in Hawaii and I was aware that the air had salt in it so I never left it unprotected for more than a couple of hours so I'd sand down a patch take photos because there were a couple of things that I repaired a couple of rust things but for the most part it was really good so now Martin's got it and I, I tell you as much as I can't stand to look at it all rusting out and uh, pieces are falling off of it from abuse and uh, it just makes me so I am thrilled when he drives in and out of my driveway right. when I see it going down the road I just I just go wow that's the coolest little truck in the world it just is and it just it makes me happy I, and you know if that's what I get out of it all the time and effort that's enough you know I can die in peace now knowing that that thing outlived me you know and it's still running it's it's just great nice hearing's the last thing to go apparently and the truck going past his bedroom window was probably the last thing he heard before he died. I drove in, the dogs ran out, I started taking the dogs down the end of the property for a walk and Kumi came out and he basically died when I drove past the window because he knew, well this you know, you, you can't anthropomorphize a corpse but one scenario is that given that there was someone there with Kumi he, he was going to die in the next one or two days anyway so yeah when the truck passed his window was when he basically stopped breathing and Kumi ran out because she couldn't tell whether he was dead or not so yeah the truck could have been the last thing he heard that's poignant uh, it's not turning over at the moment <laughs> it ran me into the ground but it's undercover it's not depreciating it's got all its parts in boxes on it the engine's out like I, I took it apart to put the new floor in so the new floor's there the engine's out that thing but it's not you know I've had a busy year just being alive so it's one of those things it's just sitting there and I'm just happy that it's not degrading it's at least on a level. The other thing is that, like, I predate 
Jerry Seinfeld comedians and cars because I filmed Rumpel while driving around the big island and I asked Rumpel the question so Rumpel what's it all about and then I filmed him for about 50 minutes in the passenger seat answering my question and that's predates comedian and cars and I'm like, getting coffee sure. I had that concept and I transcribed it I, that part of the book that I just published I've do, done two things on Rumpel and one of them's a transcript where I just ask him what it's all about and then just listen Okay, I think I interjected like four times like one line or two lines so close to mental illness so it was useful in that there's a bit online where I deliver a goat in it which is kind of part of its character the cars I mean I drove through downtown with a goat sticking its head out of the passenger seat it was not too heavy to sit in the passenger seat no it was I mean I had to wedge it it was a full on goat it was Robert's it was a leftover thing from a charity auction and like he's leaving after doing a show and they're like do you want that and he's like yeah alright so it lived under his beach house for ages and then he gave it to me and I'm like yay thanks Robert but at least I transported it across the island with its head out the window so yeah that's that's been part of the car's history that's online if there's a lesson to be learned from this track, what do you think it is? I doubt there's anything profound in that thing. It's, it is what you invest in it, you know. I mean, there's just, it's an onion. On one thing, it's just a car. It's a vehicle. It always just comes down to the fact that it's a piece of metal that takes you from A to B. But it was a folly of Roberts for many years, and it followed him around in pieces and then whole and then... He, going I only really got going in Hawaii and even then not well but then I had it and it worked really well for at least a couple of years we'll see there's been no sudden millionaires in the street performing market so I can remember I've been thinking lately that I was way off the mark like in the 90s I was of the mind that there was all this new young money in the market that there would be a really good modern a lot of sponsorship opportunity for eclectic behaviour you know and it, it, it well you know I didn't make it happen I didn't see it happen anywhere else either I just said there'd be a lot of young whimsical money you know because there was just for a very short time and I thought if it carries on you know they there seemed to be an altruistic thing in the air, but then it all sort of it went west. I did get my share of it, though, I suppose, which is why the truck's still living. I mean, the truck's been kept in a garage by someone who's paying to have it kept in the garage because they know that it's precious to me, you know? So it's still got power. It's still exerting power over people. I've wrestled with it for a while. It's still kind of mine I've given it away but I could take it back because no one's doing anything with it is the answer to find that whimsical money so that it can be back on the road again that would be one potential answer I've had to make some hard decisions you know like 
uh, it's akin to do I want a dog or not knowing that we'd be racing each other to the grave depending on what breed I got you know like there's an essence of that in there as well because it's a project and it takes focus and effort and discipline and structure and then it's got to pay off but you have to schedule it all and it has to it's a project you know you need project management skills applied blah 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 and it's just something that I've thrown myself at a couple of times and at this point I'm abated from that and it's uncomfortable hold but it Ideally, someone needs to make it electric. Any clown who would certify that they'd make it electric, I would consider giving it to. Although, so maybe the truck's going to produce a third clown? Oh, it would be nice if it stayed in the family, you know. Unfortunately, like Rob Torres was probably the most organised clown to give it to, and he died. It's one of the most organised clowns I know. My most... Of my clown friends are disheveled wrecks, you know? Wait a minute, that sounds like the track. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's not disheveled when it's up. I mean, I had it really shiny and everything. Like, I bought the little eyelid things that it has, little chrome things, and it was looking pretty tasty. I think there's life in there. I, I think... I'm not sure how much energy I can put. I think I'm just going to have to get permission for something to happen to it. Or it's going to just be perfect for something. Like if there's a budget for a prop and that's a prop, then that's one. Um, but we could bury it with dead clowns yet. Maybe that's its future. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Someone's going to have to step in. There comes a point where... I don't know. I don't know. I've been sort of on the outside looking in for a long time. I'm not sure I'm clerically endowed. When you drove that track, did you feel Robert in it? Robert bled out of it to the degree, but he was always, he, he remains in there. Like, it's still got butterfly, de uh, butterfly uh, fabric on the inside doors at the front. That's the only thing that remains. I've heard stuff, but I, you know, I have, I think I threw them all out, I'm not sure. You know, you throw a lot of stuff out when you're dying. In fact, you throw everything out, and then you have a friend arrive and ask you what you've thrown out, and you say everything, and they go, oh, you need some photos for the funeral, because that's what happens, they put old photos and shit, so then I go into the rubbish and grab all that shit out, and she goes, that's good, thanks, and she took those so I, I mean I threw everything out of the car but I had the whole history of the car I had old photos of it in Nashville used to be a light blue colour I do have that photo that uh, not photo but that decal on his t-shirts and I was going to put that on the bonnet I got that priced up the plan was to have Robert's skull with his tattoo and his hair on the front of it Initially it was going to be the two doors and then I'm like, fuck it, no, the front. Make it a pirate clown thing. That was the plan. Was to put that on. But I just didn't have unlimited money to throw at it. So that's what it needs. And I just don't see anyone making stupid money. Maybe Amy. Maybe boy with tape on his face whose, whose name escapes me. What's his name? Sam Wells. Sam Wells. I've never met Sam. 
but I didn't identify with him because he's a South Island mime. And there's not many of us. I don't think he's got fuck you money yet. A couple of years in Vegas doesn't give you fuck you money. Although if you bring it back here it might. Um, Any last words about the truck? Oh, you haven't seen the end of the truck. The truck came very close to being abandoned. Because I was, you know, it, it was next to me and I'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer and I'm just like, well, I've got to get rid of this thing in the next week because I have to fly to New Zealand. But now it's all packed up and tidy and undercover and in a garage and, but you know, mechanic's garage and just waiting there for people to throw money into it like this incubus that it is. You know, when it's good, it's very good, and when it's bad, it's horrid. But it's not even that horrid, it's just latent, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just sitting there. I did five years on with the thing, and then it, it lay fallow for a couple of years, and then work was put into it. But it's in its worst state now. But it's still got its Tonka plate. Plate. It's still got the Tonka plate. Because I looked that up and no one's... No one's taken yeah, it. Yeah, no one's taken it. It'd probably be available to be taken because I haven't been paying for it. But, um, yeah, so it's still got that. And that worked out really well for Hawaii because it was called that before it came to Hawaii. Uh -huh. You know, that's a pidgin English spelling of it, which is perfect. That will run again in the 21st century sometime because it's just too rare and wonderful a vehicle not to. Someone's going to see potential in it. I love that. It, it, it's a great thing. It's good talking to you, David. Good talking to you too, Robert. Okay, my brother. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao, bro. Ciao. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop Magic Brian a line at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well then, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. 
Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, one last thought from Martin about that offer he made on the truck. If somebody was willing to take the truck and make it electric? Make it electric and give me the schematics and there'd be a certain oversight over it and it would be, I would sign it over once it was done. But you're welcome to throw yourself at it. Obviously there'd be a commitment on your half to get it shipped to you unless you lived in Hawaii. And if you don't live in Hawaii, go and live in Hawaii. It's really nice. You should live there if you're American. If not, you shit out of luck. On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Bryan, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. God bless Martin Ewan.